I got no one to blame but myself. I changed the battery in that mic this morning, and I guess I put dead batteries in it, so. It's okay. I needed a minute to compose myself anyway. That was beautiful. Thank you for singing so well this morning. Um, We're going to be in Psalm 117, which is the shortest psalm in the Bible and the shortest chapter in the Bible. Some of you are saying maybe this will be the shortest sermon you've ever preached, Pastor Kurt. Here's hoping, right? Here's hoping. Psalm 117. The Lord's faithfulness endures forever. Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples. For great is his steadfast love towards us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. This is a little psalm with a big message. Psalm 117 is both the shortest psalm in the Psalter and the shortest chapter in the entire Bible. Charles Spurgeon, one of my favorite preachers, uh, said it exactly right. He said, this psalm, which is very little in its letter, is exceedingly large in its spirit. For bursting all bounds of race or nationality, it calls upon all mankind to praise the name of the Lord. And this says something about it. Martin Luther loved it. It was one of his favorite psalms. And Luther could be kind of a Debbie Downer about things sometimes, but he loved this psalm. He, he wrote a 36-page commentary on two short verses of Scripture. He loved it so much. That's 18 pages per verse. Psalm 117 is a part of a collection of six psalms, Psalm 113 through 118, known as the Egyptian Hallel, built around the emphasis of Psalm 114. It is a celebration of the exodus of the, from the people of Israel from Egypt. These six songs were sung as Hebrews gathered to celebrate the Passover celebration, God's great act of salvation on their behalf. So Psalm 113 and 14 were sung before the Passover meal was taken, and then 115 through 18 would have been sung afterward. So it's very reasonable to believe that Jesus and his disciples would have sung this very psalm on the night that they celebrated the Passover on Monday, Thursday, just before his, or excuse me, yeah, Monday, Thursday, just before his arrest and betrayal, Matthew 26 and 30. It is cosmic and international in its scope. It reveals the heart of God towards the nations. He loves them, and he desires that they worship him and glorify him. So we're going to ask four questions of this psalm today that this psalm does a good job of answering. Number one, why does God desire praise? Number two, why is God worthy of our praise? Number three, is peoples even a word? And four, what are we supposed to do about all of this? What are we supposed to do about all of this? So number one, why does God desire praise? Question, if you, we, we do catechisms, there's catechisms going on downstairs with our children. Oftentimes they're thought of as training a child in biblical truth as a catechism. You catechize. A child, the first catechism in the uh, Westminster Confession is what is the chief end of man. And many of you know that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. There's a lesser known catechism within that same um, uh, collection. And it's what is the chief end of God? Answer, the chief end of God is to glorify God and enjoy himself forever. 
to glorify God and enjoy himself forever. Another way to say it is simply that God is righteous. The opposite of righteousness is to value and enjoy what is not truly valuable or enjoyable or rewarding. God is the source of all value and worth and beauty. He embodies the purest standards of all these things. And this is why people are called unrighteous in Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Because they suppress the truth of God's value and exchange God for created things. They belittle God and discredit his worth. Discredit what is actually valuable and therefore they are not right. They are unrighteous. Righteousness the righteousness of God is the opposite. It means recognizing true value for what it is and esteeming it and enjoying it in proportion to its true worth. The unrighteousness in Second Thessalonians 2 perish because they refuse to love the truth. That's what it says, quote. Psalm 1, one of my favorite psalms, the wicked are like chaff that the wind drives away because they are not anchored or rooted in understanding the goodness and value of God from his word and through his word, which it's, it illustrates as a stream of living water in Psalm 1. The righteous are those who welcome and love the truth. Righteousness is recognizing and welcoming and loving and upholding what is truly valuable. Do you understand? Do you understand what I'm saying? God is righteous. Say it with me. God is righteous. That means he is right. He's right. He does nothing wrong. And he, we're, this is how we're not, we're a lot like God. We're made in his image, but this is where we part ways with God. If we delight in ourselves, we're a narcissist. If God delights in himself and glorifies himself, he is right to do so. It's because God loves what's good. And who is the source of all good? God. If God did not value himself as ultimately valuable, he would be unrighteous. And we know that's not true about him. God's righteous passion and delight is to display and uphold his infinitely valuable glory. And this is not just vague theological musing. It flows from dozens of... Dozens of biblical texts that show God is in the relentless pursuit of praise and honor from his creation to the consummation of his kingdom. Of these texts, there are, I have a list of them up here if you're interested. There are 35 scriptures that I found. I found from a, several different sources and lots of Google searching and lots of thumbing through my Bible. There are 35 different places I found where God is explicitly doing things explicitly for his own glory. It's three pages long, 11-point font, and double-spaced, so or single-spaced. So you can come and get that from me if you're interested maybe in a, in a study of how God pursues his glory from the Scriptures. The most compelling thing, I, the most compelling one I saw was Isaiah 48, verses 9 through 11, where God says, For my name's sake... I defer my anger. Hear it. For whose name's sake? Mine, God says. My name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my own praise, I restrain it from you, that I may not cut you off. He's talking to the people of Israel here. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of my affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. He says it twice there. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. 
For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. These are the words of God himself. Hear, hear those words again, just from that passage. For my name's sake, for the sake of my praise, for my own sake, for my own sake, how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. God is most concerned with his own glory, and that is righteous and pure and good. The most passionate heart for God's glory is God's own heart. God's ultimate goal is to uphold and display the glory of his name. This doesn't make him narcissistic. It makes him a lover of what is good. So answer to question number one, why does God desire praise? Because he is praiseworthy and he knows it. Above all else, he is praiseworthy. And so it would make no sense for him to put praise anywhere else in the universe except for the spot where it is most warranted, and that is in himself. That's why God wants our praise. Number two, why is God worthy of our praise? Why is God worthy of our praise? We're going to skip. So we're going to, we kind of jump around a little bit here. So it says, praise him, all you nations, all you people. So we answered that. We're going to come back to the people's thing. We're going to skip down to verse two for it says, for great is his steadfast love toward us and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Why is God worthy of our praise? There is a rhyme and reason to God's call to magnify him among the nations. It is not the, it's not because I said so. All right, it's not, this isn't because I said so of a celestial bully or an exasperating cosmic father. That's not, that's, that's a good, uh, that's a good answer to my kids sometimes, even though usually it's just masking the fact that I don't know why I don't have a good answer. I just have to, but I'm tired of talking about it. That's not what God, that's not what God is doing here. He has a rhyme or reason. It, it, it's a call for our praise rooted in the very nature and character of God that when rightly understood causes us to rise up and worship him because we must and because we are created to do so because God wants what's best for us in his love for us, in his mercy towards us. He wants what's best for us and he knows what's best for us is to value him as he values himself and glorify him as he glorifies himself and join with him in giving him praise. It's what will make you happiest. It's what will give you the most joy in an eternal way. A father wants what's good for his kids, even if they can't see it right away, such as like eat your vegetables, even though it doesn't maybe seem pleasurable in the moment, it's what's best long-term. You won't be sick. You won't be malnourished. It will be good. It's good for you. All those things we tell kids to get them to eat their vegetables is the same reasons, the same logic upon which God builds the case for why you should be glorifying and praising him because it's good for you. It's what's best for you, even when we only see just a little bit in front of our face and we'd rather have ice cream for dinner, so to speak. You see what I mean? And what can we say about our God? He is great in his love for us and he will be faithful to love us forever. Here it is again. For great is his steadfast love towards us. That hased concept 
from Exodus 34. We keep coming every single psalm, it seems like. I promise I'm not picking them based on that. It's just all over the place in psalms that we keep coming back to. Everything is rooted in who God is and what his name is. And his name is this, steadfast love towards his people, mercy and justice. I learned this. I keep learning new things about this concept because it keeps coming up over and over again. It's neat to share. The descriptor words used here are often placed in other places in Hebrew literature to describe the stronger side in a battle or an overwhelming force like a flood. Ideas like mighty or prevailing capture something of the significance of this this concept. It is... If you read this verse literally, it would come out literally, mighty over us is his loving kindness. Mighty over us. Mighty over you is God's love for you. God floods his children with his love for them. The reason God seeks our praise is not because he won't be complete until he gets it. God is not some weak, mealy-mouthed, not omnipotent God that for some reason to be self-fulfilled needs your aggrandizement. That's not who God is. He's perfectly satisfied in himself because remember, he's the center of all good. He's totally satisfied with his own glorifying of himself, but he is seeking our praise because we won't be happy until we give it. He wants you to praise him because he knows you won't be happy until you give it, not truly. Praise the Lord, Psalm 147, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant, it is pleasant. And Praise, this concept of praise doesn't come as an outgrowth of our delight in something, it's the most important part of our delight in something. It brings our delight to completion, okay? Praising something or someone is not the outgrowth of your delight in them, it's a part of your delight in them. Do you understand what I mean? For example, I am a lover of good tastes. Okay, I chose my words carefully there. I'm not evidently a lover of food, okay? Because some food doesn't taste good, right? I'm not a picky eater, but I'm a lover of good tastes, things that taste good to me. I have an entire room in my house dedicated to spices and cooking in addition to the traditional one, which is called the kitchen. So I have a kitchen, and then I have a spice slash, and you might say, well, that's because you have an army of people to feed every meal. That's true, but it's also because I like good taste, okay? I scheme and create and think about flavors. It doesn't happen this way every time because sometimes things don't work out, but my favorite part of the whole process of cooking a meal is when we all sit down at the table together and our senses are engaged together. The food is desirable in our eyes. We see it. It looks good. We hear the dishes clanging and the, and the scoot of a chair across the floor Scooting up to the table, bellying up to the table. We feel the emptiness of our stomachs. We smell the aromas of the herbs and the spices. And, and then, and then, and then, and then, finally we get to take that food and we put it into our mouth. How gracious is God that he gave us this? So good, right? And some of you guys are like, man, hurry up, bro. We got to get out of here. He's right there with it. 
and we put it in our mouths, and, f- and when we experience flavor, and we collectively say in praise, what do we say? We all take the bite together. It's a, just a great steak, right? Done. Well, maybe that's a bad example, because a lot of people ruin steak, but Dessert, everybody, you know, dessert. Okay, so it's some sort of, it's Miss Connie's banana pudding, okay? So we all, we all sit down and we take our bite of Miss Connie's banana pudding and what do we all say together? Mmm, that is good. Mmm, that is good. And the praise of the thing completes our pleasure in it. Man does not live on bread alone, Jesus says, but on every word that flows from the mouth of God. God has spent eternity preparing the best meal for your soul, namely himself, his love, his grace, his faithfulness, served to your soul on a silver platter. On your own and especially together, we come together and we taste and we see that the Lord is good and we bring our pleasure in him to an apex when our souls together say, mmm, he is good. He is good. And what's the other thing that naturally happens when there's a person not at the table, when they're off in the other room missing out on this experience of this meal, of this pleasurable experience of food, what do we do? We say, hey, hey, so-and-so, come in here. Sit down. You have to try this. That brings me to my third question. Is people's even a word? And if it is a word, then who are they? Peoples. Yes, peoples is a word for you grammar people in here. It sounds odd to our English ears because people is usually the plural form of person. What unites a people in the way that the Bible uses the term peoples is not mainly location but culture, including things like language and customs as well as physical features. Nations, as this psalm outlines, or peoples in the Bible don't refer to political states like America or Spain or Brazil or China, but to ethnic or language or cultural groupings inside of these political states. So peoples is the plural form of a people group, is what I'm talking about. So yes, it is a word. Peoples is a word. So when Psalm 117 says, praise the Lord, all nations, extol him, all peoples. It means praise the Lord, Baluk of Pakistan. Praise the Lord, Manika of Guinea. Praise the Lord, Bourgeois of Indonesia. Praise the Lord, Wa of China. Praise the Lord, Congolese of St. Louis. These are the kinds of groups Jesus was referring to when he said after his resurrection, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Panta te ethne. The same phrase, if you read the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. 
that is used in Psalm 117 is used exactly the phrase for phrase match what Jesus says in Matthew 28, the Great Commission. These are the groups that Jesus meant when he said the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all ethne, to all nations, to all peoples, and then the end will come, Matthew chapter 24. So a huge question for followers of Jesus today, or should be, how many peoples are there and how many of them are still unreached with the gospel of the kingdom of Jesus? How many still have no church that they can obey Psalm 117 in and praise the Lord? Who is missing out on this gourmet meal for the soul that God has prepared? If you look at, I, I spent just, you can just get hours. Write this if you're, if you're a note taker and you're wanting a resource. IMB, internationalmissionboard.org. It's, it's an organization subsidized by the Southern Baptist Convention. It's the largest uh, international missions, coordinated international missions effort in the world. If you go to imb.org and you're interested, you can be there for hours because there are statistics and it's just a treasure trove of information about missions and unreached people groups. So according to their most, the most recent data they have, for missionary purposes, they calculate one, or excuse me, 11,227 people groups in the world. 11,227 peoples in the world. Of these, 6,614 have less than 2% evangelical Christians. Hear that. That's more than half have less than 2% evangelical Christians. Of that 2%, 68 people groups have populations over 10 million. 433 people groups have between 1 and 10 million, and 1,452 have between 100,000 and 1 million people. Translation of all that, that's a lot of people. Not feasting at the table of Christ. If you hear someone, someone say today that Western missions is over, you know something must be wrong with their head or their heart. Because what might be causing them to say that is they do not, number one, may not believe that God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is to be praised by all people. Maybe that might be a belief that they have. Or they may not believe that anyone is actually perishing without the gospel, which I think that's probably, whether in word or in deed, is probably the root case. They don't actually believe that People who die apart from Christ go to hell. Here is the bad news that makes the good news so good. Lest the peoples hear and accept the invitation to taste and see that the Lord is good through the person and work of Jesus on the cross. Every single person that dies apart from the banquet of Christ will perish and pay the penalty for their sin for eternity in hell. Every single one. Romans 1 says there are we are all without excuse because God makes himself known to everyone through creation enough that we condemn ourselves by our sins, but it takes a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ to be redeemed.
David Platt, the former director of the IMB of the SBC, once posed the question and answer of this. What of the innocent man in the bush that never hears the gospel? What of him? Never gets to hear the gospel. And he said, I suppose the innocent man would go straight to heaven. But according to scripture, this is fact. There is no innocent man. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Missions is a cross-cultural movement aimed at helping people stop making much of themselves and praising themselves and start making much and praising and bringing glory to the one who is worthy of it. Missions is a cross-cultural effort to transform people's hearts so that God is felt to be more praiseworthy than sports stars or military might, or artistic achievements, or anything else that God has made. Missions is a cross-cultural endeavor to help people experience God as their treasure above all their earthly treasures. It's a life-and-death struggle to give people eternal life, which consists in knowing and enjoying God forever. Missions is our efforts to say to unreached people, come, taste, and see that the Lord is good. Missions exist. I, 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 there's a, a good, Let the Nations Be Glad. is a book by John Piper, if you're interested in, in a lot of these concepts. Read that book. A quote that he has in there that he, it's, I, I resonated with was, missions exist where worship does not. Where worship of God exists, we don't need missions. Missions the end goal of missions is to get people doing what? Praising the Lord, all you peoples. Worshiping the Lord, all you nations. And so, in a very real sense, we are a bunch of beggars showing other beggars where to find bread. Come, sit, dine, feast with us at the table and you will never hunger or thirst again. That is our message to the peoples. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And so, final question. Final question. And hardest question to answer. What are we to do? What are we to do? Four things. Three things. Excuse me. Three things. Educate, pray, give slash go. Educate, pray, give, slash, go. Educate. Missions is innately other-centered, therefore it's hard. Hear that sentence. Missions is others-centered, therefore it's hard. The reason in our fallen state that we are not good at missions is because it requires an inconvenience to gain something that has nothing to do with your glory and everything to do with God's glory. You have to give something up 
of yourself, knowing it will not gain you glory. It will not benefit you directly. And that's hard. Especially in my like wheeling and dealing, deal making way, right? Like I want to get mine. If I, you know, like it's a, it's a like unspoken Midwestern thing that we do that if somebody compliments something that you've got, like a personal possession, the next thing you do immediately is to talk about how good of a deal you got on it and how, how well you did on that price and how you got a fair exchange or better than a fair exchange in your way. You got yours, so to speak. Missions is nothing like that. Nothing like that. It has nothing to do with that at all. We need education because to collectively together, brothers and sisters, hear me, we have to pull our heads out of the sand together. You don't need, we don't need from me this morning another rah-rah mission sermon that is a nice rally cry yet results in little to nothing. You don't, you've heard them, you don't need it from me. Our mission efforts need substance and staying power. And that comes through a deep-rooted and educated love and enjoyment of God and a giving way and a desire to share him with other people. We taste and see that the Lord is good. And then because it's so good, we don't care what it costs us. We're going to go get the guy who's not eating and we're going to tell him to get over here and eat. Even if it costs me something. You have got to eat. You'll die without it. IMB.org, I already told you that one. Educate yourselves. IMB.org, Operation World. This is an encyclopedia of unreached peoples. It's 20 bucks at our welcome center, which is stupid cheap. They, They make a new one about every five years because guess what? It changes. They have a kid's version of this as well. That one's at my house. I forgot it this morning. Incorporate this into your family worship times. You can also get, Pastor Matt reminded me, you can, you can go to operationworld.org and sign up for their, they have a daily email or a weekly email. You can sign up for the world. They'll, they'll profile an unreached people group right into your inbox every single day where you can pray for them and how you can pray for them and so on and so forth. So Operation World, great resource. Let's educate ourselves on where the people are that are not dining with us. I have this set of DVDs called Dispatches from the Front. Maybe we'll start a, maybe my next, uh, after this next Membership Matters role, maybe we'll go through these, watch these as a missions course, as an elective on Sunday mornings. Tim Kesey is this guy's name. He just, I love Tim Kesey because he loves coffee, and anybody that loves coffee, I, I just have a, a place in my heart. But he he talks about, uh, he goes to all these different places, dispatches from the front because he's going out to hard mission fields and reporting back what's going on amongst the unreached people groups in the world. So uh, dispatches from the front, good one there. And then also, like I said, go to imb.org and just educate yourself. Help your children understand that peoples is a word and what it means. Pray, pray. Educate, pray. 
Mark this down. Mark, mark this down, brothers and sisters. I, I have something specific I want you to pray for. I want you to pray that God would raise up a point person in our church for missions. A point person in our church for missions. Write that down. A person with the heart of Psalm 117. A person with giftings to administrate and help us to carry out the Great Commission globally and help give us a unified vision for missions in our church. We've got a deacon of a lot of things, we've, and we've got five elders now, and he's given us deacons, and there's all kinds of areas, and there's one, as a pastor, I look, and week after week after week after week after week after week after week, Matt and I have inboxes full of missional asks, and we, we are just trying to manage it. We need a point person. We need a point person. Pray that God would use this church to gain him glory through salvations in unreached people groups. Pray for focus. I'm just speaking for myself here, but I believe we need to focus on a an unreached people group. One, to start. Which one? I don't know. I don't know. That's why I want you to pray. Let's pray together that God would make it clear to us how he wants us to use us and who he wants us to invite to the table of Christ in a very missional, formal way. Lent starts Wednesday. Starts Wednesday. And I know we're not like a high church. We're Baptists. I mean, we sell pork butts for Pete's sake, right? Hashtag Baptist butt. Had to say it, sorry. But you can, this is the season for prayer. It's the season we prepare ourselves for Easter, for Holy Week. Fast. Maybe you'll fast and pray for these things. I hope you will. Give something up for the sake of this focus, missions. How does God want to use our church to help all the peoples in the world praise him? And then finally, the last thing, so educate, pray, give, slash, go. It has been a long time. Hear me. It has been a long time since this church has sent a missionary or a mission team to an unreached people group. Maybe never have we done that. Maybe never. I don't know. Certainly not in my tenor. Unreached people group. We should not act willy-nilly, but brothers and sisters, it is time. Can I get a witness? It is time. It's time. 117, we must obey that all people would come to praise the Lord. Some of us have the energy, the health, and the giftings to get on an airplane and fly all over the place. And some of us have the resources to send them. Oftentimes when I'm preparing to preach a funeral, I will get lost in my file full of previous funeral sermons, and I get lost in recollecting memories of brothers and sisters that I have helped lay to rest. This last, I, I preached a funeral not too long ago, and I, and I stumbled upon uh, Granny, Granny Lou Clark's. One time she called me. I was in my office. She called me. I needed to come see her because she had something we needed to talk about. And it sounded kind of urgent. And, you know, 
Granny Lou, she got flustered sometimes, so I thought, well, I said, okay, Granny, I'll, I'll be there in a little bit. You just gonna have to wait a second. I'll be there. I didn't know what it was about. So I went across the parking lot and up to her apartment on a cloverleaf on her kitchen table. I walked in, and on her kitchen table, there was sprawled out letters from missionaries and ministries. And each one of these missionaries and ministries had an empty envelope with it. And she's just standing there looking at them with her arms crossed like this. And I walked in, and I said, what's up, Granny? And she said, she said, well, here, here's this first, and she handed me her tithe check. And I said, okay, is that why you called me over here? No, not exactly, but you can take that back to the church, she said, so I don't have to worry about it. I said, okay, so I, you know, tucked it away in my binder, and then, and then I saw on the table there was a, there was an, another envelope, and it was kind of full, and I said, well, what's, a, what's a, what do you got going on here? And she said, well, in that envelope, I have $20. I said, oh, yeah, it's it was $20 in ones, $1 bills she had. And she said, honey, you know how she was, honey, this is what I have left after my bills and my tithe this month. Would you, you would know better than I know. Can you help me decide who's doing the Lord's work and where this, where these dollars should go? And after multiple times of me refusing her, trying to just give me the money because, in the words of Granny Lou, but honey, you got all them kids, she kept saying over and over. I said, no, Granny, you're not, I'm not taking that money. A few of those envelopes went into the trash. And a few envelopes, the gospel-centered ones, gospel-centered ones, got cash in them. And then she grabbed my hand. She said, let's pray. And she said, Lord, use these dollars to save someone. And here's the good part. And bring yourself glory. All of us need to participate great, small, rich, poor, energetic, not all of us. It's time. Even if our effort seems relatively meager, I'm unconcerned what bigger churches are doing. I care what our best effort is. The Lord for another generation has called this church back to his word. He has given us elders and deacons. He has given us a good constitution. He has restored strong church membership. He is establishing his witness in a strong way through this church in Mount Vernon. We are feasting together, and we are in ever-increasing measures tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. And we set resources aside for pastors and parking lots, and this is good, and it is pleasing to the Lord. Let us now, as a church, turn to the one who is rebelling against the feast that we enjoy and invite him to delight with us. Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples. For great is his steadfast love towards us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. Let's pray.
Lord, the application of this sermon. You know, Lord, you know I toiled with you this week because the application of this sermon for Mount Vernon Baptist Church is still veiled. It's not entirely clear the specifics of how you want us to go about fulfilling the great commission of Christ in Matthew 28, backed up by the fact that you want your praise and your glory brought out amongst all peoples from Psalm 117. God, you have saved us. Now use us. Even as I pray, Lord, open hearts to be willing to go, to give, to be a part of something. Soften us, Lord, through your word to hear what you want and where you want it and how you want it. Raise up a director or deacon, the leader of missions. Raise up children that know there are peoples that don't have your gospel, and let us watch those children become missionaries, preachers, proclaimers of the good news. Help us to put away selfish things, hurtful habits, expensive, not purposeful spending of resources that can be redirected for your glory, for your purposes, for your kingdom, until you return again. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.